Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. So do you fix and flip houses or invest in real estate or just want to get started doing so? Well, Alpha Funding has you covered with fast, flexible, and reliable service and rates starting as low as 8.99%. Fast closings, no tax documentation or bank statements required, no prepayment penalties, seasoning or minimum draw requirements. Alpha Funding, the softer side of hard money. To get yourself pre-approved today, go to alphafunding.com or call 732-657-2014. You super excited about today's show? We're really gonna dive in, and I'm excited. We have Nikolai Nikolai Ray on the show. How are you? Hey, Jason. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. So we're excited to have Nikolai on the show. He is the CEO of of MREX Multifamily Real Estate Exchange. He is considered by many of his peers as one of North America's leading experts in apartment investing, with over one billion dollars in analysis, underwriting, and transaction. A pioneer in mid-cap multifamily financial engineering, he is often called upon as a teacher, advisor, and keynote speaker. Nikolai is also a real estate tech innovator through his current work on multifamily real estate, big data, artificial intelligence, and property tokenization using blockchain technology. Well, we, we got a lot to dive in here, don't we? Man, that's a mouthful. Tokenization is probably the first time and I, I've ever said that. And I'm, I was thinking in my mind, is this a word I'm, I'm going to start hearing <laughs> and over, start putting into my uh, vocabulary? But I love it, man. So thanks for coming on. And you have so much you're hearing, but let's just talk. What got you started in the real estate space? So um, what got me started was uh, actually at a pretty young age. Um, I grew up, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Canada, in Quebec, in the French part of, of Canada, and uh, moved to Los Angeles when I was uh, just under a year old, and grew up in Los Angeles, came back to Montreal after the uh, big earthquake in 94 in Los Angeles, and uh, at that point, uh, my life was focused on becoming a hockey player. I wanted yeah. to play in the NHL, so. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So I ended up making it pretty close. I played uh, four years of junior hockey, in Canada and then played professionally and semi-professionally until the age of 22. And uh, as I was playing hockey, you know, I was, I was at the age of 16, 17. And, uh, you know, my origin story can go pretty far back. But ultimately, I was, I was you know, I've always been very, very good at math uh, and very business-oriented, probably starting at the age of four. So, so uh, I was 16, 17, playing junior hockey. I had done high school. I was already doing uh, college courses, uh, thanks to thanks to distance, uh, you know, using technology and everything, and started kind of playing around with the stock market, playing around with forex. One of my dad's good friends was actually a quant, so he was uh, he built a whole bunch of crazy algorithms for forex trading, and I started kind of just playing around with that, following him around. And uh, made, made a bit of money thanks to what he was doing, not to what I was doing. <laughs> so after, after a little while, he was like, you know, Nick, you're going to have to learn how to do this stuff your own. And you can't just, you can't just ride my coattails for the rest of your life. So I was <laughs> like, oh, that, that's fine. I got what I needed. <laughs> so I actually took the money that I made doing that and, and, uh, and had saved up a bit of money too playing hockey and uh, put that money into, uh, well, a couple of my buddies wanted to buy an apartment building. And they didn't have all of the down payment necessary, so I helped them out. And that's, that's how I got into it, is ultimately I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll put some of my money into this, and, uh, uh, but I want to see kind of what, what, what are your numbers? What are you doing? What's the risk I'm taking? So I taught myself how to underwrite my, my own money that I was putting in behind them. I was, I guess I was 18 years old at that time. And uh, for about four years, did that. And then at 22, put my money back into entrepreneurship because I stopped playing hockey, retired, and decided to go into business for myself. So I reoriented my assets and my capital into, into business. But that's ultimately how I got started in real estate, like more as a passion, more as, uh, as an amateur investor. And fast forward to the age of 27, uh, my, my third business I started an investment banking firm in multifamily real estate, and we scaled that within three and a half years from, from zero to $100 million in, in, in recurring annual transactions, and ultimately ended up working on, on got my hands in about a billion dollars worth of transactions, 
and actually underwrote and worked on maybe analyzing another $10 billion worth of transactions. So that, that's, that's it in, in under a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's, it's awesome. And I, I'm just thinking here, you know, so many people, they're, they're scared to go big, but it sounded like your whole objective is always to go bigger outside your comfort and then learn what you need to learn to get to that next step. And talk us through this here. Cause you know, even the first thing from an apartment building, you said, okay, I'm just going to teach myself underwriting. What is it in your core comments? What is it that allows you to take that big step and where so many people say, well, maybe I'll start safe with a single family home or something and just yeah. kind of put my tone in the water. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of it amounts to uh, probably upbringing and just <laughs> activation of DNA. I don't, I don't want to take much credit for it because ultimately I think, uh, um, you know, it comes from my parents. When I grew up, like when I was four years old, this is a story I like to talk about is I was four years old in Los Angeles and in the late 80s, LA was pretty rough. Like today LA is, is awesome compared to what it was, right? Um, and, uh, so, so we were walking around downtown LA, which is now called LA live. And at that point, you know, all there were, 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 you know, crackheads and homeless people and, you know, kind of mixed in with the crowd. And it was, it was very, the streets were dirty. And at that age, I was already telling my parents, you know, I, I said to them as we were walking to breakfast somewhere, I said, you know, one day the towers that we see around here, well, I'm going to have a tower in each major city in the world. And they're going to belong to my company and my company is going to clean the streets and feed the poor and, and, and give lodging to the homeless people. Right. So that yeah. was, that was at the age of four. And my parents, instead of saying, well, you know, that's ridiculous or, you know, maybe you should become a fireman or something or you know, they were like, well, Hey, if that's, if that's what you want to do, then do it. You, you can do that. And that's kind of been, that was the, the, that was the guiding light of my upbringing. I grew up pretty poor my parents were artists, bohemian musician, theater actresses, and and so so we didn't have much money. We grew up in very rough neighborhoods, you know, it, pretty much the same the ghetto or the outskirts of the ghetto. Uh, but I grew up with a lot of love and with the the non-limiting beliefs of being able to do whatever it is you put your mind to it. And I'd say the second part of that is I, I've always had an, an, an enormous uh, capacity for for learning and learning fast on my own. Like the easiest way to understand it is if you remember the Matt Damon movie, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Um, I kind of have that same way of learning things. And, uh, and you know, I, w I, w I was five or six years old and I was already doing math at a, at a high school level and I was already writing 200 word essays. So instead of being punished by not being able to watch TV, my dad would make me write a 200-word essay on why I acted the way I acted and what I can do in the future to not repeat that that's awesome. <laughs> That reaction. So that's ultimately where it comes from. <laughs> yeah, it's so key, though, your support group, right? And, and oh, sometimes sure. just a difference in people just, just deterring you or just saying, okay, if you want to do it, how are you going to make it happen? Go make it happen. It's just it's everything in life. So Exactly. And I mean, I think you have to constantly also – train your mind and, and, and keep on, on pushing. And, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm discrediting myself right now and kind of saying that it would just come kind of, just kind of fall upon me as a child. But I mean, I have done a lot of work and I continue to do a lot of work to, to keep on training my mind and, 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 you know, trying to push everything that I do, which is, that's the only way I, I feel like living. I don't, I don't think it's for everyone. Uh, but I think in, in, in life there, there are mostly two types of people people who uh, try and run away from anxiety and people who try and r run away from boredom. And, you know, I spend my life running away from boredom. So <laughs> I love it. And with so much you've done, what does what your business look like today? What are you actively working on right now? So I sold my investment firm in, in, in 2016. Um, and, and I sold that to start the company that I'm, I'm running right now called MREX, which is the multifamily real estate exchange. Ultimately what we are is a tech startup in the multifamily space. So we're a fintech startup and uh, it, 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 what we're focusing on is building technology and data and especially actionable data to help multifamily investors in the community just, you know, have access to the kind of normal tools and stuff that, that stock market investors have access to right now, but that real estate investors don't have access to. So that's what we're focusing on building. You know, it, we're focusing on building a, a standardized and unified marketplace for the multifamily property market space. And we're also uh, putting the foundations to build a, a securities platform, which would ultimately become the NASDAQ of real estate, where you would be able to uh, pretty much 
tokenize through blockchain technology a multifamily property, sell off shares, which are represented digitally as tokens, to uh, you know smaller investors or, or more passive investors, and then they would be able to also retrade those shares, just like a stock market pretty much. So that, that's a longer tail project that we're working on. You know, it's a five to 10 year project. In, and, and the short term project we're working on is pretty much creating an Expedia of multifamily pretty much. I love it. And so what's going to happen here in, in your opinion over the next, I mean, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we don't even have the iPhone. And now here we are now just pushing so quick into, into the technology age with, with everything. How is that going to translate to multifamily? And where do you see people that are not engaging in some form of technology? Where are they going to be in five, 10 years without using it? Oh, they won't be in the market anymore. And I think ultimately uh, people are, real, real estate is very archaic. I, I'd even call it Jurassic pretty much, you know, because the stock market kind of became digitized in the 70s thanks to the NASDAQ, right? Real estate at the moment is not really digitized. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on a couple transactions right now just personally. And, and you know, I, I, I submit an LOI uh, through email. I get the LOI back. You know, it's copy of copy of copy of documents. The broker sends me, you know, the dates that I have to keep in, in mind, you know, that I have to visit the property by, by say, June 27th. I have to inspect the property, you know, by 15 days later. I have to do this. And then I have to go and manually input those dates into my calendar. And it's like, this is such a messed up process. And then when I want to find data on, on comparable properties, when I want to find data on how the market's acting to actually help me price this asset and structure my capital stack, it's, it's just, it's, it's so time consuming. And I haven't even spoken about actually finding the property itself, which is, which is quite a time consuming and energy inefficient activity in itself. So, so I think, you know, technology has not even really touched real estate at the moment especially not multifamily real estate, but it's coming. And ultimately, it's going to probably get, a rid, get rid of like a lot of brokers who don't bring any value to the space. It's going to get rid of a lot of unsophisticated investors also because as we gain access to data and especially alternative data, that means data with context, like not, not the stuff that you find on CoStar or, 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 or these other websites, but actual business intelligence data that will help you make better decisions with regards to acquisitions, financing, how you invest CapEx into properties and how you refinance out of all, all, out, out of, all of that. Well, it, it'll make the market more efficient than what it is. And the more a market becomes efficient, well, the less you can just lean on relationships and insider knowledge. And the more you have to become a sophisticated investor and actually master a knowledge base that is, is much more, you know, intensive, like understanding actual finance and economics and understanding how financial engineering can come into play into structuring capital stacks. And, you know, you, you ultimately, you, it'll be the end of the landlord. Like it'll be the end of just the apartment building owner. You'll have to be an actual investor. You know, I, I was just having this conversation um, with um, with Chad Gallagher of uh, Slate House. He's a property management company. And they're really they're really pushing the tech too. And he was just talking that even the leasing process is almost going to push property management companies outside the door because you, you no longer you have to say, okay, I'll meet you here. You know, can you meet at Saturday at twelve? No, I can't meet Saturday at twelve. I can meet Saturday at one. And we'll be like, oh, here's an automated process. You know, you can see it visually on the phone if you like. You can go there and just let yourself into the apartment. You know, and just tour it around if you like that. From there, fill out an online application, go to that point, and almost just taking that step out. And it's it, what you're talking about is, is the opposite point. It's even just the acquiring and, and the, or the disposition and acquisitions phase of multifamily properties is both going to happen in the same way because right now it's like, oh, I get an insider tip that, you know, uh, Joanne's had this property, you know, this building for 20 years, so maybe she wants to sell. And, and then, I, you know, I, I'm following your guidelines here. What from oh, your and, and just to, to stop, stop, stop you there, what, what you just put your point on there with the management company, that, that's, I mean, the, the applications of, of, of the Internet of Things, IoT, mixed with artificial intelligence on that side of things is, is, is tremendous. And I mean, I'm, I'm at the forefront of all of this stuff. And, and on the acquisition side and the portfolio management side, you know, we're talking about uh, especially big data and artificial intelligence, which has not really found its way into, into real estate yet. Like we're not even at the point where there's real big data in real estate at the moment. And big data is, you know, probably like 10 years old. So, and then 
on the transaction side and the accessibility to the market, what blockchain technology will do is, I mean, it's going to be completely, in 10 to 25 years, it just will be mind-boggling how real estate's going to be done compared to today. Now, I, I have to focus on the underwriting because you have so much experience in, in how much, just the volume of, of underwriting you've done over you know, 10, plus, 10 plus billion dollars in transactions. How, how has your underwriting philosophy changed over the last three, five years, presently to today? What have been some key things that stand out to you? It's, it's funny because you know, some, some people are like, oh, you're the master underwriter or this and that. And you, know, you must know everything. And you know, the fact of the matter is that there's so many great underwriters out there working for real estate investment trusts and, and private equity firms. I mean, there's so much talent. And, and the one thing about underwriting that you have to understand is, is you have to maintain a level of humility that, is, is, that increases with your talent. So the more knowledge and talent and experience that you have, the more humility you need to be a, an, a good underwriter because, you know, the way it changes, you know, number one is underwriting has to deal with statistics, past, present, forecasting, has to deal with market cycles. There's so many moving parts. It's unbelievable. And, you know, real estate is often oversimplified you know, because that's what sells courses and that's what sells seminars. But, you know, it, it's such a complex asset class. There's so many moving parts. I mean, just when you're underwriting a property, in, in reality, what you have to actually underwrite is you have, to underwrite the, you have to underwrite the property market, you have to underwrite the space market, meaning, you know, actual rents and tenants, and you also have to underwrite capital markets. <laughs> and you kind of have to have a, a general knowledge of, of macroeconomics which is kind of overshadowing all of that stuff. So, so it, it's, it's very complex. And, you know, most people only, under, only underwrite at the property level. And I'd say that's how I've became better over the last, you know, I mean, technically I've been underwriting for probably, you know, almost two decades now, pretty much. I'm 35. I've been underwriting since I was 18. But I've been professionally underwriting since the age of 27. So, you know, just under a decade. And I'd say, you know, being, going from, what most underwriters do at the property level and then maybe integrating the space level, but then integrating capital markets into that and adding onto that the experience level and the humility that comes with that experience of having gone through different phases of a real estate cycle and going through actual different cycles and understanding that stuff. It, it just makes you a much more prudent and more precise underwriter. And I'd say that's the most important thing because in underwriting, when you're, when you're underwriting a property and you're using, you're using DCF analysis, discounted cash flows, you know, with like a, a, an Excel spreadsheet or a cruncher, the first thing people need to learn in underwriting is, is it's garbage in, garbage out. So if, the, if, if, if your inputs are garbage, your outputs are garbage, right? And underwriting you know, just like basic mistakes that people make, if you look at it, is the, the, the core inputs of underwriting a multifamily property are what's the exit cap rate or what's the uh, refinancing interest rate? What is the growth rate on rents? What's the inflation on expenses? You know, th those are the key, key points. And they're very hard to predict and forecast, even more so if you don't have a background in statistics or, or if you're not a quant, right? And even if you are, the reality is, you know, forecasting is a very unprecise and, and very unproven science, right? If we can even call it a science at all, right? Economics is, 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 is you know, is it really a science? That's, that's, that's a big debate. So you have, to, you have to find a way to understand that, number one, and have the humility to understand the limitations of your underwriting and therefore strive to become a very precise underwriter. And how you become a precise underwriter is through constantly re-underwriting your underwriting. So, you know, mistakes that I made when I was younger and that I think a lot of people make today is they'll underwrite uh, ex ante. So they'll underwrite prior to acquisition and they'll just leave it at that, right? So let's say you're a syndicator, you do your underwriting, you do your offering through, say, a Reg D 506C and you never really touch your underwriting again. No one, no one is really continually underwriting. So, so what I do in my underwriting is 
I'll underwrite the acquisition and then post acquisition. So ex post, I'll, I'll re underwrite and, 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 and concord my underwriting models every quarter pretty much and adapt and continually readjust my forecasts and hypotheses to make sure that I I'm being as precise as possible. And the way you become precise is obviously through knowledge, data, and experience, but also through continually readjusting because you don't have a, 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 a you don't have a, a, a magic ball where you just look into it and you're like, okay, this is what the future is going to provide with us. And the only truism in, in statistics and quant and e economics is the closer you are in time period to your forecast, the better chances you have of being right, right? <laughs> Forecasting the refinancing interest rate three months from now is it's much more probable that you're going to be precise and right than forecasting the refinancing interest rate five years from now. I mean, that's just basic, basic reality. So, so I'd say that's, that's, a, that's a major thing. And for someone listening today that, that, that needs, just is corely focused on improving their underwriting skills, what are some of the lessons learned or, or things they really need to focus on today? Because you talked, you know, on three different levels, talking to the property market, the space market, the capital market, and most people are just analyzing on the property level. How should they be more fluent in the, in the space for, for the market space and the capital space as well? Well, they have to understand how those three kind of levers work together and affect one another. And, and and can work in autonomously, but dependently. So that's, it's a very philosophical way of, of, of underwriting. And you have to have that philosophy. I believe that strategies without philosophy are useless. So that's like, you know, someone who says I'm a buy and hold investor, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> that means that you, that means you, that, that, that's like saying a hockey player can only turn right, that he can't turn left, that he can't go forward, or he can't go backwards. That, that's one thing, right? Or that's like saying, I'm a football coach and all I have as a strategy is a Hail Mary. And we just do Hail Marys every single play. And that's it. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. So I think it, for people who are getting started, started in underwriting, before even understanding those three different levers of underwriting, I think the core thing is to understand, number one, time value of money. It's a basic finance subject that so few investors understand and putting time into understanding time value of money. I mean, we're not even at the point of understanding IRR and, and MPV and, and all that stuff, just actually understanding conceptually and philosophically time value of money. Because once you have that understanding, then you can go on to the next level and start to understand the, the, opportunities, but also the limitations of various underwriting tools like internal rate of return and net present value and opportunity cost and, and weighted average cost of capital, all things that you should be fluent in if you're underwriting a multifamily property. Because ultimately, we're, when you're underwriting a multifamily property, you have to be able to price the asset properly. And the way that you price the asset properly is you're, you're pricing future cash flows, right? And future cash flows are not only annual free cash flow, but it's also the, 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 intra, the, the, the principal part of your mortgage that's being paid down. And it's also the appreciation of your property and the appreciation of that market. So, so it's a, there's so many moving parts. The fact of the matter is, is that people think that they can learn how to underwrite in a weekend seminar or in a 20-hour course. Mm -hmm. in, in, when in reality, I mean... You know, I, I, I've, and I teach underwriting and I, I've taught underwriting. We have, a, we have an arm at, at MREX called the College and Research Institute of the MREX. We teach uh, underwriting and financial engineering for multifamily investors. The fact of the matter is I, I have guys and, and, and gals that come, through, that come through our programs that already have degrees in finance. And, and you know, even six months in, they're not even at 10% of what, what underwriters at, say, my level, not to, not to, not to posture, but underwriters at my level are at because it, it's, it's such a complex field, but it, it's, it's so valuable. If you're an investor or if you're a syndicator, you should be putting a lot of time in to learn everything that goes behind underwriting and then practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing.
So where are you focusing today with your, with your underwriting skills? What metrics, what markets are, are really looking forward to you, looking at where you feel we are in, in this cycle? Well, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a really great question. I think, you know, I think overall we're, we're I mean, as, as the great Howard Marks would, would say, and I'll paraphrase him, uh, you know, we're in the late innings of the cycle. Uh, the only thing is it's like a baseball game. You know, we don't know if the game will finish in the ninth inning. We don't know how many innings there will be. And we certainly don't know how long each inning will be, right? So, 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 so understanding that principle or that, that philosophy, I think ultimately it's a question of, of pricing assets properly and understanding the dangers and the opportunities of using leverage, using it wisely, and investing in markets where, you know, you have some, some safety. You know, it comes back to, you know, before, before searching which markets you should invest in, you really need to look at what your, your own investor profile is, right? Because let's say if I, if I have access to, 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 you know, let's say if all my, all my down payments come from a couple ultra high net worth individuals that I, I get money from because I built these joint venture partnerships with them or I have these relationships with, with them and they're only asking me for 5% uh, return on investment because, you know, they're ultra high net worth individuals, but they want a 5% preferential that's practically guaranteed, even though you're not supposed to guarantee it. Um, Alpha Funding Solutions offers creative financing tailored to your individual needs. Whether you're fixing, flipping distressed properties or building ground-up construction, Alpha offers flexible financing to get the job done. With no minimum draw requirements, no prepay penalties, and no seasoning requirements, borrowers can create a construction loan that best suits their individual needs. Everything at Alpha is done in-house from the sales force to underwriting, construction management, and draw payouts. The team at Alpha works as a unit to best serve their happy family of over 1,000 borrowers. Experience the alpha difference today. Visit www.alphafunding.com or call 732-657-2014. Again, that's alphafunding.com and the number is 732-657-2014. There's nothing to lose and everything to gain. Alpha Funding Solutions, the softer side of hard money. You know, my weighted average cost of capital is going to be very different than, say, yours if you have to, you know, generate a 14% pref because you're a first-time syndicator, right? So, so, so that's the core thing is understanding your own profile and the investor profile of yourself or your company or, and or the investors behind you. That's the major thing. And then once you've done that, well, then obviously you're going to go and look at the different markets. I mean, if, 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 if you have to generate a 14% return, you're going to be looking for high growth markets. Uh, obviously, you're going to go for probably riskier markets because you're going to have to generate that growth, right? Or you're going to go for, for high growth uh, neighborhoods or, or properties that are undervalued. And it's all a question of, of valuation. You're going to have to try to find properties where you're paying a certain price, but it's undervalued. And that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong is they, they'll fall into the trap of saying, okay, let's look, and I'm trying to make this as understandable as possible because this is pretty high level stuff. But let's say you're looking at a property that's selling at a million dollars. Um, the cap rate on the property is 4.3%. But the cap rate in that market is 5%. So what, what people are going to generally make the mistake of doing is they're going to say, well, I'm not going to buy that property because the cap rate is lower than market cap rate, meaning the property is priced higher than what it should be priced at. And then they'll look for properties priced at, say, a 5.2, 5.3, 5.5. So let's say they buy a property at 5.5% cap rate. Now, the cap rate is the unlevered return of a property. If the property is at a 5.5% cap rate in a market that's a 5% cap rate, there might, have be, might be a very good reason why it's trading at a 5.5. You know, it's, it's probably trading at a 5.5 because it's in a bad neighborhood or it's a really bad run, bad, badly run property. And the other thing is, is cap rates, you have to remember that 
the cap rate is a metric of stable of a stabilized property. So if you're buying value add properties, you shouldn't be talking about the cap rate unless you're adjusting NOI based on the NOI that you'll get once it's stabilized and adjusting sales price with the CapEx that you've invested in to getting that new NOI, right? I think that's so one of the most important point, right? Because I think so many times people make the huh. mistake of it's not stabilized and they're looking at cap rate when the property's not stabilized. And that's where exactly. a lot of things go sideways. Oh, man. And, and, and they're missing out on deals because that 4.2% cap rate property, if you adjust the CapEx that you're putting into it, put that onto the price and then look at your NOI in eight months once it's stabilized, you might realize that your actual cap rate's 5.7%. But you passed on that deal because you don't understand cap rates. You don't understand NOI. You don't understand the levers you're playing with. And you don't understand statistics, right? Because the other thing is, if you're looking at the cap rate of a market, everyone makes a mistake of looking at an average or a mean cap rate mm -hmm. or a median cap rate, which is a mistake because cap rate should be a range. You should be looking at what is the range of cap rates in the market I'm looking at. Now, if the range is between 4.7 and 5.8, well, you can understand that probably the 5.5 and higher cap rates are going to be in the C and D class neighborhoods, whereas the 4.8 is going to be probably a newer building in the better neighborhood, right? So, so that, those are all things that you have to kind of keep into mind. So, you know, and, and to come back to your question, because that, that was a long-winded answer to not actually answer your question, is... You got to look at demographics. You have to look at demographics of the markets that you're looking at. You got to look for growth. You know, I, I did a webinar uh, recently with, uh, with uh, Ryan Bourdon, who's the, the VP of a big uh, real estate investment firm in the Northeast of, Jackson, uh, of Florida in Jacksonville. And I'm also doing one with Gino Barbero, who's based out of Jacksonville, uh, who invests in, in the Southeast. And, you know, we were talking about Jacksonville. You know, it's a high growth market. Like Phoenix is a high growth market. So obviously, if you have to generate those values or returns, you want to go to high growth markets. And uh, you also want to go to markets where you feel that even if the economy takes a dump, uh, once the, 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 we phase out of this, this cycle, well, you want to be in markets where demographically and economically, they won't be affected too much despite the macroeconomic condition. Because... Even though we're in the late stages of the cycle nationally, you have to remember that multifamily is a local sport. Yeah. And you could be in a recession and still have multifamily markets that are actually not in a recession. <laughs> Yeah, that's well put, right? Because I was actually just talking about this. Not every city is just in the same cycle. And, you know, some no. cities may be two, two years behind, you know. And so, oh. so where you're seeing here, you know, if you're in Denver, well, that may be a, a whole, it's a whole different environment than, you know, I don't know, Toledo, Ohio, you know. Oh, and, absolutely. You can be in Denver right now and be in oversupply and be kind of at the, at the tip of the, the tip of the crevice, right? Uh, tip of the, of, of the mountain right there. Whereas you can be in Phoenix and, you know, you're just, you still have a lot of room for growth and expansion. But if, and for you're you're looking high growth markets, so you know you're doing a lot of um, webinars on Jacksonville. Is, is that a market that's really meeting the metric that you're going after in properties? And for you, you know, we, we touched on cap rate, but properties, of course. Where is Nikolai Ray playing right now? What what kind of properties are you looking for? It, it depends on, on on who I'm investing for or who I'm analyzing for. So so if I'm all, if I'm doing it for my ultra high net worth individuals and private equity firms. You know, I'm, I'm looking more for like the blue chip markets. Uh, growth won't be as high or uh, it won't be as, 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 it won't be as high, but it'll be more stable. And it'll, it'll continue to grow even say in a bad macroeconomic condition. Whereas if I'm more in a wealth creation process, say as a younger investor or someone getting more started off or, or a syndicator, well then I'm gonna go to more higher growth potential markets where there's, you know, a path of progress. So obviously um, Jacksonville, because we mentioned that. I, th I think the whole kind of, uh, if you go diagonally from the northeast to the south southwest of Florida, so from Jacksonville, cross to Orlando, down to Tampa, that's a big path of progress, I believe. Um, and I think Phoenix in Arizona is another one. Uh, there's some pretty cool places. Uh, Utah I love, like Salt Lake City and Provo. Um, very interesting markets. 
even place like Boise, Idaho is very, very interesting. So, so there are various markets. Um, obviously, there are places that, that I kind of shy away from, even with the ultra high nets. Uh, I'd say like the, the northeast of the U.S. I, is, is, you know, a bit more of a scarier market. The Rust Belt is, I see a lot of people going into the Rust Belt, going into Cleveland, going into those markets. You know, you have to make sure that you know what you're doing. You know, I see people buying properties at 8% cap rates, 9% cap rates in Cleveland because they say, well, you know, I can't find anything. You know, all the properties in Seattle are trading at 5 and 5.5% cap rates. Well, they're trading at 5.5% cap rates in Seattle and at 9% cap rates in, in Cleveland because don't forget that mathematically the cap rate is a function of, of, of risk reward, right, and growth. So, so you get it, you have to make sure that you you're pricing the assets properly. So I'd say overall, those are, those are a lot of the markets that I'm looking at personally right now. Um, I had been looking a lot at Denver and Nashville in the last, last I'd say five to 10 years, but not so much now because I think, I think, you know, they, they've become very saturated. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, everything that's between Tampa and Jacksonville, very interesting. Phoenix also. I'd say Texas, but I, I am a bit worried that so many people are in Texas. Like it seems like every single guru and syndicator are all talking about Texas and, and with reason. But, you know, to, to come back to, 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 you know, one of my idols, Howard Marks, who is probably, you know, arguably one of the best market readers, you know, economically and one of the best investors ever, I'm always worried when I see everyone going somewhere. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I understand that. So I absolutely agree. And now that doesn't mean I won't go there. Yeah. I'll go there, you know, protected. <laughs> yeah, sure. And what are some of the stress tests you, you, you like to put on your property? Because, or, you know, I'll take this to another point. What, what are some, for someone who, who's just starting out, maybe they've syndicated a deal or they're looking into points, where, where are some of the, the, the sidesteps that, that you see a lot of people take that, that they need to avoid to, to be successful? Well, people are making mistakes on, on, on the inputs that they're putting in. So, so uh, depending on what the exit strategy is, because obviously like our internal rate of return is dependent on an exit, right? There has to be an exit in order to be able to compute an IRR. Now, an exit can be either a disposition, so selling the property, or it can be a refinancing of the property. And what I see people making too many mistakes is, obviously the key metrics, if it's a refinancing, well, what is your, what is your refinancing interest rate? That, that's really important. People are just putting in these bogus, bogus interest rates. They're like, well, I'm financing today at four and a half. So you know what? Five years from now, just to be safe, I'm going to plug in a 5.5 or a 6% interest rate. Okay. Based off of what? Uh, well, I'm being conservative. Uh, no, you're not. That's not conservative. That's not based on anything. Conservatism, conservatism is based on data and choosing the most conservative scenario. Now you're not basing anything on data. Therefore, there, it's, it's not a scenario. It's just wind, right? So that's, that's the one thing. And then obviously exit cap rate, right? So if, if, you're, if your plan is to sell the property, well, what's your exit cap rate? Well, I purchased at a five, so I'm going to put a six exit cap rate, okay? What if it's a seven though, right? Or what if it's a 5.5 exit cap rate? Because there's a double edge to that sword where you might make the mistake of over, uh, over, thinking how much return and performance you get, but you might also make the mistake of underestimating the actual intrinsic value of the property, which means you won't invest and you won't buy anything and ultimately you won't have any return. So th there's two things there, two sides to that story that you have to be careful of. So I'd say, you know, in, it, people have to be really, really thoughtful of these inputs. Also be very thoughtful of what, what's rent growth going to be and what's the inflation of expenses going to be. Because that's the other, those are the other levers that will affect future cash flows and thus internal rate of return and net present value. So you really have to keep an eye on that and be very, very, try and be as precise as possible and as thoughtful as possible and back your assumptions by data and readjust and re-question continuously what those assumptions are.
So let's pick one of those data points, exit, let's say exit cap, right? Yeah. What would be some recommendations for people to be more precise with picking an exit cap if they're looking for a five-year hold, seven-year hold, something of that capacity? Well, obviously, the further out you go, the harder it is, <laughs> sure. right? Yeah. So I think you need to make many scenarios. So to come back to your, the question prior to this one, which I think they tie in together very well is, you know, kind of what's the risk management situation is when you're underwriting, you shouldn't be just underwriting one scenario. You should be underwriting a, a, a whole set of scenarios and then attaching your confidence level and, and probabilities verse towards each of those scenarios. And, and that way you can kind of see, okay, well, you know, if I look historically, let's say at Atlanta, I look at historic cap rates, I can kind of find a range, right? And if I look at uh, how interest rates have acted and I'm looking and listening to what economists are saying about future interest rates and all this, I can start to build these different scenarios. And as you build those scenarios, and obviously if, if, if you're someone who has done statistics or you're quant, you have access to, you know, to stochastic modeling, to Monte Carlo simulations, that's, that, I think that's even better. But ultimately, the simplistic way is simply to do a whole bunch of scenarios with different cap rates, exit cap rates, different growth rates, different interest rates, and look at what would be the consequences of those different scenarios. Which of those scenarios can you stomach? Which are more probable? Which are more improbable? And to which point can you stomach them? And what would be your plan B, plan C, plan D according to each scenario, right? So it might mean that on your first deals or on your next deals, you might just use less leverage, right? People get lazy. Syndicators get lazy. You know, they're going to say, well, you know, I'm only raised, I'm, I'm purchasing a $10 million property. I've got 75% LTV financing. So I'm going to raise two, you know, 2.5 million, right? Why not raise 3.5, you know? Why not raise 4 million? Why not go for a lower LTV or why not underwrite uh, for, you know, for a rainy day? You might have to promise a bit less returns, but I always say under promise and over deliver rather than over promise and under deliver because you should be playing a marathon. This is a marathon, you know? Yeah, so, well, you're absolutely right. And, and those are just key solid points is that you run in your stress test, knowing your environment, it gives you, it gives you a better way to just, and to, I, I guess the easiest way is it gives you a better way to have ultimate ideas of how you're going to get out because you're living in a property where you got 100, 200, 300, 400 people going on in there. The property is going to go sideways at some point and not, not necessarily in a horrible way, but there's going to be something that's not going to meet your data. But if you, if you run different tests, understand ultimately different things that could happen, it puts you in a better just case scenario. And just, just saying that every syndication I do, I, you know, I do, you know, 80% LTV or whatever it is just for, because that's what I do. So I guess that, that, that's following the suit right there when, when we're going after and you might even go for your full LTV, but maybe you'll keep cash reserves higher than you than than were necessary, right? Got it. Yeah. Which will which will ultimately affect your overall uh, returns that you'll offer to your investors. But uh, really, you're not because people forget that returns are based on risk. So you know, I see people saying, "Well, you know, I've I've generated twenty percent IRR to my investors as a syndicator. You know, I'm beating all these other investors, all these other syndicators." We're doing 15. Yeah, but what's the amount of risk that you're taking, right? And are your limited partners, your passive investors aware of that risk? You know, what, what's, what's the beta? You're, you know, people, people think that they're, they're generating alpha, but they're not really generating alpha. They're actually probably even generating a negative alpha because they're taking on so much extra risk just to generate that extra percent of return. Love it. That's great. And yeah, you got to really appreciate your time. A few more questions for you. Just uh, in terms of your business today, what is something that you do as a daily routine or, or other that helps you be so productive during the day? <laughs> what, what, it's funny because, you know, everyone thinks until you've, until you've started a business, if you're thinking about jumping into entrepreneurship or starting your business, everyone thinks that, you know, starting a business is the hardest thing, right? Getting off the ground. But it's not. And, you know, I, I've started five businesses already in, 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 you know, 13 years. The hardest thing is, is managing growth. And that's the same for business, whether you have a construction business 
or whether you're a syndicator or whether your business not even, is not even in real estate. So I think the, 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 the routines that I put into place is, is number one, um, making sure I set time aside for myself. And this is something that I was, I was guilty of not doing for, for quite a long time of sacrificing my health and my body and my well-being for, for you know, just cause I have so much to do. And I, I, you know, I've experienced it myself, even though theoretically we all know this, but it's kind of one of those things where until you've lived both sides of it, you, you don't really know it, even though you do know it, you know, it's like, eat your vegetables, you know, if you want to be healthy, everyone knows that, but a lot of people don't do that until they actually really get sick, right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, I try and get up every morning at about five o'clock in the morning, just because I have three young kids. So they're up at around six thirty, seven o'clock. Um, so I try and get up early to do some exercise, to listen to some, some things that'll get my mind right, because no matter how strong you are mentally, you know, sometimes you just need to hear, you know, Sometimes you need to listen to David Goggins on a podcast or you need to listen to Jocko Willink or, or you know, whatever, whoever it is because, you know, it helps and you're like, okay, you know what, I'm being a, I'm being a pussy right now. I need to, you know, I need to get back to who I am. So just putting a bit of that time aside and also putting time aside to think, you know, it, it comes back to the Pharaoh's, the story of the Pharaoh's children, his two sons where the Pharaoh had in Egypt has two sons. And he's giving them, he'll give one of them the empire. He'll give the empire to the son who is able to build a pyramid faster than the other one. Now, one of the sons is really muscular. He's like 6'4", and, you know, I, you know maybe I'm, I'm inventing this, but, you know, this is my, my version of the story. Sure, go for it. He, he's 6'4", he's 230 pounds with like 5% body fat. He's like the rock. <laughs> so, you know, he, he starts... He starts by, by building the first, the first floor or story of the pyramid with these big, big, huge boulders and rocks and bricks. And, you know, after like a year, he's got like the first two or three stories built, right? And the other son, he's like really skinny, kind of a brainiac nerd, revenge of the nerds type. And after a year, he still has not started building his pyramid, right? Because he's building tools. He's actually building like a crane, kind of like a lever system. So the, the big son, the muscular one's like, yeah, I'm going to be the pharaoh. I'm going to have the empire. You know, everyone's laughing at the, other, at the other son. But at about year two or three, the strong son, he's not able to lift up the stuff up to like the third or fourth story. And there's like 10, 12 stories to go, right? And he's just destroyed physically because he's done all this heavy lifting and all this heavy work. And he's completely physically destroyed. Whereas the other son, well, he built a crane or whatever the medieval or the, uh, not medieval, but like ancient times in Egypt style crane, whatever you want to call it. He's built this lever system to lift these huge ass rocks and bricks. And by year four, He's already like at story eight and by year five or six or seven or whatever it is, whatever the story says, I can't remember the timeline. He's built, he's built a pyramid, right? And he's not even tired because he's used tools and he's taken a step back to think and to strategize. Yeah. And that is the key to succeeding as a real estate investor or as a real estate entrepreneur, what I call a realpreneur, or even just as a normal entrepreneur is making time, making sure you take some time, whether it be 10 minutes or an hour, whatever time you need to sit back, get a bird's eye view, act like a general and, and, and think about what's going on and think things through because that's when you can start to build tools and also build an organization that will help you achieve your goals. I love that. And, and it just goes down to a lot of, you just, especially when you have your own business, sometimes you're just stuck so in the business that you forget to actually look at the business. And so and that story actually just puts it all right out there that you just, and, and don't get me wrong. You have to work in the business. Like mm -hmm. it, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to, I, I hear so many people talking about, you know, being uh, financially free and not working and, you know, only working on the business and not in the business. And, you know, one thing, you know, I'm, I'm not like a Gary Vaynerchuk fanboy or anything like that, you know, but one thing I really liked was his metaphor of the clouds and the dirt. And the reality is, is if you, if you eventually want to soar above the clouds, you have to start in the dirt and you have to work in both of those. And, 
you know, you have to work in your business at first. I mean, unless you're a hedge fund baby or a trust fund baby, I mean, and you inherited a whole bunch of capital to be able to right away work only on your business, you're going to have to work in your business too. Well, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed this. Got two more questions for you. If there's someone listening today that it's just been sitting on the sidelines and just looking for a way to get started, what's, what's an actual step they should take today to get themselves started on their real estate journey? Getting educated, obviously. I think a lot of people are just not educated enough and that's what's preventing them from, from going into the market. And uh, I think a lot of people are trying to go in it alone. And that's a mistake. Uh, I, I think we've lost our culture in the U.S. And, 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 you know, I'm also Canadian and Canada. We've lost our culture of mentorship, but especially of apprenticeship. You know, back in the day, everyone was a, started off as an apprentice. You know, if you wanted to be a blacksmith or if you wanted to be a butcher or if you wanted to be a farmer or construction worker, you always started as an apprentice you learn and you start as an apprentice. And I think that's one of the things we're missing in our society today is everyone wants to get rich quick. Everyone wants to have success fast and everyone wants to be the CEO of their own one person company. And I think a lot of people should, you know, go and be apprentices and, and, you know, find someone like me or find someone like you or find, you know, someone who's already doing it and who's doing it properly. And maybe, you know, be an understudy and invest behind them or work behind them and be a bit more patient. You know, one of the biggest, probably the biggest mistake two of the, the two biggest mistakes I've made in business, you know, now and I, in hindsight, after 13 years and being very, very successful, I can say this is number one. Well, three mistakes. Number one, I wanted to go grow too fast. Uh, number two, I, I partnered with the wrong people. I was too trusting and, you know, didn't do enough due diligence on, on the people I was partnering with on the business partners. But ultimately, I, I wanted to be the number one guy too soon and too young and too fast. And if I could go back at the age of 22, I'd find someone who has the business that I want or has the success that I want. And I'd go and be an understudy of that person and, and work under that person and put my ego aside for a while and, and, and jump in the, in the game that way. Yeah, really well said. Thank you for that. And for everyone listening today, how can they find more about you? How can they find more about MREX? What's the best way to connect? Well, uh, the best way to connect with MREX is on the website. So www.mrex.co. Uh, also, MREX has a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page. Uh, we post a lot of stuff. Uh, we're coming, uh, we're, we're launching the Multifamily Real Estate Week, which is a, uh, actually awesome. a four-day event, which is going to be awesome. We'll be in Florida at the end of this year in the fall. And uh, we're entering also with the College of the MREX, the College and Research Institute. So uh, we'll be launching the certificate in multifamily real estate financial engineering. And you can find me and connect with me on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. I'm extremely present and it'll be my pleasure to, to, to you know, talk shop with, with anyone who is already in multifamily or who's looking to get into multifamily. It's my well, pleasure. Nikolai, I appreciate it. And for everyone listening, you've got a ton of value out of this today, but definitely check out his social media. It puts out great stuff out there, great thought points. So really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation and uh, thanks a lot for, for having me today. Awesome. Well, everyone listening, thank you so much. We really appreciate you as a listener. And please go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating review. It helps other people find this great show. Again, thank you so much, Nikolai Ray. Thank you to all the listeners. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation Podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.